You know, when you preach and, and you're led to the throne uh, in the worship and the music, it just makes preaching such, uh, so much easier of a task. So thank you. Thank you, everyone. Uh, appreciate that very, very much. Uh, thank you for not going away on March break to some sunny place and staying here. You know, Jesus said, the poor will be with you always. <laughs> so here I am. Let's pray. I need Jesus' help this morning, so we're going to ask for it. Father God, we love you. Father, great is your faithfulness. As the ladies have led us, as we lifted our voices to the throne, and we're refreshed with the reality that our chains are gone, and we've been set free. Never to be enslaved again, for he who is free and you is free. Father, your servant uh, needs your help. You know I'm very tired today. It's been a very tough week. And so would you just give me clarity in my thinking and the energy as we want to hear from you this morning. That's our heart cry. Can I get out of the way, Lord? Put me in the background. Take the stage. For you alone are worthy. We pray this in Jesus' name and for his glory forever and ever. Amen. I was on my way to a meeting on Tuesday morning of this week, early in the morning, riding along in my car and my uh, cell phone rang, which is on hands-free in the car, and uh, <clears throat> didn't recognize the number. I said, hello. And a voice said, hey, Steve. And I said, yeah, who's this? And he said, it's Todd. Todd's been a friend since high school. His wife's been a friend since high school. I've known them and been friends. We've traveled together. We've done life together. I mean, they were in the church that I pastored. And you know, sometimes you hear somebody's voice and you know immediately something is amiss. I said, Todd, are you okay? What's, what's wrong? He goes, no, I'm not okay at all. He said, Florence took her life last night. I said, oh, I'm kidding. I can't believe it. So <clears throat> they have five children. He said, could you come? I said, yeah. I said, I'm in Hamilton. I'm just at a meeting, but I said, I'll go in. I'll do what I need to do. And then I'll come to your, come to the oldest daughter's home. I said, I'll be there. I'll be there. So most of this week, I journeyed with these five kids and a dad who is devastated, hearts broken. It culminated yesterday with a funeral, 1,200 people in attendance. Imagine. And they have made it no secret of the journey that mom was on with issues of depression and mental health. Uh, Two of the children, is there any country music fans here? Yeah, okay. Two of the children are the Recklaws. You ever heard of the Recklaws? Fairly well-known Canadian country brother and sister duo. So this would be their mom. And so they have started uh, a foundation uh, out of this tragedy to deal with women's mental health and to help women who are struggling with mental health. And why do I tell you that? Because of this. One of the things that happens when you journey through something like that is there's unanswered questions, right? And one of the things that people just try and grab a hold of is last words. What was the last thing she said to me Uh, was there something I missed? Or is there something I can cling to? What, you know, what, what were her last words? And so you desperately try and rekindle in your mind what was said and, and what she meant and, 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 and try and grab hold of something. Now, this morning, we're going to talk about some last words. They're the last words of the Lord Jesus before he goes to the cross in his deliberate speaking to the disciples. And we've journeyed through this upper room experience. And now we get to John 17. So open your Bibles, if you would, to the Gospel of John, chapter 17. That's where we're going to land this morning. And I've got a lot to cover. So we're going to jump right in. This is known as Jesus' high priestly prayer. His last words of teaching to these followers of Jesus. 
And so we're going to listen carefully. You know, Matthew 15, 18, the Lord Jesus himself said that what proceeds from the mouth of man is a reflection of his heart, of his heart, comes from his heart. And so I want you to notice this morning that the final words of Jesus for his followers before he goes to the cross, interestingly and wonderfully, are actually an intercessory prayer. That's what he offers for his disciples. And if that does not put prayer in a whole different league, amen? In a whole different universe almost. If that final activity of Christ engaged in by choice, he could have done anything, then I think we need to take careful inventory of this event. And so it's incredible that we get to listen to the Son speak to the Father just hours before human history is divided. So hear the word of the Lord. Let's look John 17, beginning at verse number 1. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted his eyes to heaven and he said, Father, the hour has come. Listen, glorify your son that the son may glorify you. Now, the first question we might want to ask ourselves is, what motivated his praying? If he could have done anything, what motivated his praying? I would suggest the first thing that motivated his praying is the intimacy of his relationship with his father. He always has prayed. Uh, In fact, it's an expected reality in the life of anyone who wants to have a relationship with the Father. We often talk of the Lord's Prayer, you know, you learn the Lord's Prayer. It's misnamed to the Lord's Prayer. It's not actually the Lord's Prayer. This is the Lord's Prayer. The Lord's Prayer that we often refer to, of course, is when the disciples say, Jesus, teach us to pray. I would suggest that's the disciples' prayer. But Jesus says to them, when you pray, not if you pray or if you have time to pray or if you get the chance or whatever, there's an expectancy of prayer. It's a given. And Christ, of course, as in the flesh, in, 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 in the theologically, if you go to seminary and you pay a lot of money, you learn a term called the hypostatic union. Isn't that impressive? That only cost me about $3,500. But that God, what, coming as Christ, is fully God and fully man and lives in this hard-to-comprehend cohesiveness And so we aspire to do, and he's the model for how we should live. But Jesus always prays, and it's it's an example. If we read through the gospel narratives, friends, it's an example to us about prayer. He prays at his baptism, right? Which tells us that one of the times we should pray is at spiritual milestones. At the temptation in the wilderness, right? The spirit, the, uh, the Satan leads Jesus into the wilderness, or tempts Jesus in the wilderness, and Jesus is fasting for 40 days, and the devil challenged him in his role as the son, and he resists the devil with the word of God, right? So we should pray when we're tempted. We should also pray, interestingly, uh, after his success in Capernaum, town of Nahum, Capernaum, we often say, when the whole town came to him, Jesus was faced with immense success. Do you know a key time to pray in your life is when you're experiencing a mountaintop experience success? Because that's when you're most susceptible to fall, and that's when the fall is the greatest. We've seen that in many pastoral pictures, so sadly, in the last few years. So on the mountaintops of life, you should pray. Uh, During the choosing of the twelve, right? Jesus calls his his disciples to follow him. And then he went on to the mountainside to pray. We need to pray when we are faced with significant decisions in our lives. When he faces the pressure of the crowds, Jesus prays. We're 
to pray during the challenges of our lives. The feeding of the 5,000, right? He re- re- Jesus resisted really the seduction of being made king. He withdraws to a mountaintop to pray, be with the Father. Of course, the crowds come around the other side of the lake. If you come with me to Israel in October, Lord willing, I'll take you to that very spot. Jesus walked on the water that very night. But one of the things he did was he took this little lunch from a boy, just a lunch, and he said, Lord, we only got this lunch. We really need the buffet at the Mandarin. Isn't that what we do though, right? Uh, Lord, if we had a lot more to work with, this would be a lot better. No, he says, Lord, thank you. Thank you, Father, for this. It's only a kid's lunch. We need to pray for God's provision when we need it, and he shows up. We need to pray for others, the confession of Peter, right? Jesus says, who, who, do you, who do you say that I am, Peter? He says, you're the Christ, the son of the living God up at Caesarea Philippi in the north. The transfiguration, Peter, James, and John beheld his glory, the Mount of Transfiguration. He's praying. We should pray that we see that level of intimacy with the Lord. Prayer. I love what our good Catholic friend Basil Pennington says. Listen to this. In prayer, we seek God. We do not seek peace, tranquility, quiet, enlightenment. We do not seek anything for ourselves. We seek to give ourselves to God. He is the all of our prayer. Jesus always prayed. Significant times he prayed. As a man, he never lays aside you know, his, his intimacy with the Father, and, and we just see this beautiful reality of him communing with the Father, including that night. And he lifted up his eyes to heaven. I love that. I love that. He prayed it because it was his practice, but it was also his privilege. It was his privilege, right? It's the highest level of discussion we have ever been party to is in that upper room, Jesus lifts his voice to the Father. We've already read in John chapter 16, Jesus said, In that day you will ask in my name, and I do not say to you that I shall pray the Father for you. For the Father himself loves you, because you have loved me and have believed in me. I came forth from God. We enjoy that same privilege, right? In fact, in Romans 5, chapter 1, it says, Through Christ we have peace with God. The enmity has been broken. We enter into this relationship of intimacy by way of faith. And I think you would agree there is nothing better than talking to those you love. Amen? I had this crazy crush on a girl when I was a teenager. She moved to Australia on one of those exchange programs for the for a year. Remember they used to have those exchange things? You go, oh, uh. She moved to Australia for a year. That was when, now some of you that are like 20 and under, this is gonna sound really strange. There used to be a thing called long distance calling. <laughs> and it costs money. And in those days, calling Australia cost a lot of money. And for a couple of months, when the phone bill came, my father blew a gasket. Because there was like 80 or 90 buck phone calls on there. When you're a follower of Jesus and you pray, did you know it's a local call? And it always gets answered. And he's got caller ID. He knows you're calling. He still answers. Isn't that amazing? How did he pray? He lifted up his eyes to heaven. I love that. This actually was his customary way to pray. Have you ever, uh, if you were raised in church, raised in Sunday school, you've probably heard this. Okay, we want every head bowed and every eye closed. Because if one eye's open, the whole prayer goes kaput. (laughs) Right? You almost feel like that, right? Like every head bowed, like that's the rule. But you know what Jesus does? His Father... Father, I'm here. I love you. Have you ever done that? Have you ever stepped out into a starry Sarnia night in the summer and lifted your arms and say, God, I love you. Thank you. Thank you. I'm yours and you are mine. 
Have you ever done that? Or have you had every head bowed and every eye closed? And then if you're, you know, if you're a kid and you're in Sunday school, right? Then some kid sooner or later always says, Thomas had his eyes open. And then some other kid said, well, you must have had your eyes open because you, and then you're like, yeah, I never thought of that. Should have kept my mouth shut, right? But Jesus lifts up his eyes, cries out to the father. Now remember what his heart is. We've heard what his heart is. It's to glorify the father. And friends, listen carefully. You cannot glorify the father without daily interaction with him. You say, oh, I love my mother. When's the last time you called her? Uh, 1986 or 87. Really love her though. You're not going to know her heart. You're not going to know her mind. And then he also reminds us, Jesus reminds us who we pray to because of the first word of his prayer. You see the first word of his prayer? Father, Father. You know, John mentions his father 53 times. If you want to go back and read chapters 15 through 17 that we've walked through the last several weeks. See, the Old Testament revealed God as Jehovah, the great I am, right? Moses says, oh, who do I tell him sent me? God says, I am, I'm it, I'm everything. It's quite an amazing reality that in the Old Testament, we see God in this reverent, majestic way. And in the New Testament, we see God in this personal way. You see, in the scriptures, the nature of a person is revealed by their name. See, we, we, we pick names, you know, you go, you know, you have a baby and you go through the name book or you go online, the popular names, right? But in the scripture, when you read a name, it's indicative of the very character of the person. It's, it's not simply an identifier. God is our Father, Abba. Jesus wants that to be perfectly clear to those disciples and to us. But listen carefully, church, this morning. Please listen carefully. Our relationship with God is personal, but that doesn't mean it's casual. You hear that? doesn't mean it's casual. We approach God when we pray, fully aware of His very nature. Uh, Christianity, friends, is the only religion that acknowledges that God is both infinite and personal. And we hold those in tension. And I would just like to suggest to you that I think in many regards, we've gotten a little too casual in approaching God. I like to laugh. You know that if you've been here for a few weeks. I don't take myself very seriously. I'm just a guy. My wife is here. She, you're actually a goofball. That's what you would say. She'd say it lovingly. I don't take myself very seriously, but I take God really seriously. I take God really seriously. God is eternal and holy and good and immutable and independent and infinite and omnipotent and omnipresent and omniscient and patient and perfect and incomparable and is all power and beauty. He's self-sufficient and timeless. He's governor, creator. He's jealous. He's full of justice and he's absolutely righteous. Amen? Amen. So we approach him as such, and we approach him with loving respect and reverence. He is not your homie. He is almighty God. And when you approach him, you are on holy ground, and he invites you in. So who's he praying for? Who's he praying for? Look down in chapter 17 to verse 20. I'm just going to jump ahead, and then we're going to come back, okay? Who's he praying for? I do not ask for these only. These are the disciples sitting in the upper room where he is. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who believe in me through their word. That means Jesus is praying for, take your finger out. Come on, everybody take your finger out. Okay, I'll be gone in a couple months. Okay, so take your finger, hold your hand. Okay, Jesus is praying for me. 
Say it. Jesus is praying for for me. He's praying for you. In that upper room, 2,000 years ago, he's praying for you. It's, it's, it's just incredible. He is praying for us. Now let's read on. Let's go back to John uh, chapter 17, verse 6. I have manifested your name to the people, and this is where I want to spend a few minutes this morning, who you gave me out of the world... Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Verse 7, now they know that everything that you have given me is from you, for I have given them the words that you gave me. Remember, Jesus is always speaking the mind of his Father. And they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you have sent me. And I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those who you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them, and I am no longer in the world, but they are, watch this, because we're going to come back to this, in the world, and I'm coming to you, Holy Father, keep them in your name which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled." But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word. The world has hated them because they are not of the world. We're going to come back to that. Just as I am not of the world, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you have sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. We're going to come back to that. Verse 19, and for their sake I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who believe in me through their word, us. So the Christian's four orientations to the world, friends. The first one is this, you are out of the world. If you're a follower of Christ, you are called out to a new posture as you relate to the world around you. And this is an internal spiritual reality, but it is manifested externally in the way we live and the way we think and the way we speak and the way we act. The word church, in fact, our Scottish friends use kirk. I, I, the uh, the uh, uh, interment yesterday that I did for that funeral was at a little country church called Kirkwall. Kirkwall. Kirk, the Scottish word means belonging to the Lord. We're belonging to the Lord. We don't belong to the world. We're out of the world now, right? We've stepped out. And in the mind of God, the church of Jesus Christ is a called out group of people separated out from the world to be a people that should maintain that separation in thinking, which then affects the way we speak, the way we act, the way we respond to the world around us. We have been called out of the world. If you do not realize that, you will have no message for the world if you're fully aligned, if you've calibrated yourself to the world's thinking. But the second thing that Jesus mentioned is we are in the world. So we're called out, but we are in the world because this is where we function. We have to live in the world. We're not monastic people. God's glory is manifested within our interaction and experience with others. That's why in verse 11, I am no longer in the world, Jesus says to the Father, but these are in the world, and keep through your name those whom you've given. Help them as they function in the world, that may, we may be as one. 
Uh-oh. That we, pardon me, that they may be as one. Uh-oh. That means we actually really need to love each other and, and even like each other, right? Even though somebody said something about your casserole 12 years ago at a church supper, you can forget that and give that over to, cast that over onto Jesus' shoulders. Forget about it. But, but we're to be one as we function in the world. Do you know what I'm convinced? Listen, here's what I'm convinced. The world longs to see people that relentlessly and unconditionally love each other. When that happens in a church, you know what the church has to do? Build an addition. Because that's reflecting the unconditional love of God. But we get jacked up about all kinds of nonsense. Craziness, right? I said to somebody a week ago, hey, you know, in church in a week, we're not going to have to wear a mask. And the person said to me, I love you, but you probably should keep wearing yours. Number three, we are not of the world, nor do we have the equally dangerous way out. Because some people say, you know, well, boy, there's nothing worse than assimilating with the world. There's an equally dangerous way out of this, and that's to become extracted from the world, and you're just throwing hand grenades at the culture, right? And this is where, this is where the Christian life arguably is a little bit challenging, or, you know, it's a little bit, wow, Because the reality is most people find it much easier to go to explainable extremes than to live in the center of biblical tension. Now let me unpack that a bit for you. An explainable extreme is, you know what, I'm a Christian, but yeah, I'm going to do everything that my friends at work do, my friends at school do, like, you know, because I, you know, I got Jesus in my heart, but, you know, I can kind of do what I want, you know, his, his grace is enough. Right, And the other end of that is sort of this angry, the world's going to hell and they deserve it. And thankfully, I'm not like them. See, it's easier to live at one of those explainable extremes than to live in the center of biblical tension, which is called out of the world, not to be of the world, but we're in the world. And number four says we're actually sent back into the world on mission. And if you're living at one of those explainable extremes where it's easier to live, just do whatever you please, right? That's license. Everything contributes or diminishes your salvation. That's called legalism. Legalism is Jesus and a few additives. Grace plus, that's legalism. License is I can do whatever I want. God, he's good. He lo- God's loving. There's no problem. And it's actually, in some regards, easier to live there than the center of biblical tension, especially when you realize that we are sent back into the world. But the reality is, folks, we're not allowed the luxury of disengaging from the world, right? The holy huddle, right? The holy huddle. Like sometimes I meet Christians, you know, and they go, I got the joy of the Lord. <laughs> and I'm like, well, somebody, somebody should tell your face that you got the joy of the Lord, right? Right? Like we're to be salt and light and joy and help and peace and truth in the world. Jesus came full of grace and truth. He's carrying those two realities together. So how do we live as salt and light in the world? Quickly, we, we might as well say it. It means you, you live a sacrificial life. It means sacrifice, right? I talked about that last week. Remember the cow story, right? I said to you, why would Jesus step out of the glory of heaven? Because though he was rich for your sakes, he did what? He became poor so that through him you might become rich, right? So it means sacrifice. It means innovation. Christ was an innovator. Did you know that? It means, and that doesn't mean you do whatever you want, but Christ was an innovator. If you read in Mark chapter 4, 
It talks about when he went and he was talking to people at the seashore and there were so many people, he got in a boat and he went out in a boat and he talked to the people. Do you remember that story? There was no PA system. There was no sound reinforcement. He just talked to the people. You know what what he did? He went, there's a little spot on the Sea of Galilee. I can take you right to the spot. It's still there today. It's called Sower's Cove. It's a natural amphitheater. You can go out in a boat there and sit and talk and you can talk to hundreds of people. They've done it in modern times. It's a natural amphitheater. He was an innovator. He said, I know what I'm going to do. You can literally connect with the world today. Skype, internet, Facebook, you name it, right? Air travel. I think Christ would have embraced a lot of things to reach people today. Christ connected with people. And to connect with people, you have to speak to people. Canadian sociologist Marshall McLuhan knew the power of the voice. You probably know Marshall McLuhan, even though you don't think you do, because he said the, the medium is the, anybody know? Is the message, right? Brilliant mind. Marshall McLuhan was paid a million dollars several years, well, three, three or four decades ago. He was paid a million dollars when he coined this phrase, reach out and, does anybody remember it? Reach out and touch someone. It was for long distance calling, right? That that was so innovative, right? If you want to engage people, you got to reach out and touch them. you got to talk to them. you got to interact with them. That's what Jesus does, right? Easter's coming up. Who are you going to invite to your house at Easter? You know, who's, who's new in your community? Are there some internationals? Is there international students? Do your kids go with international? They'll come for Easter. They'll do it. you you got to innovate, right? How do you survive being in and not of when you're sent back in? Let me just give you a couple things. First of all, you make a deep commitment to the word of God. That's why Jesus said in verse 17, right there, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. So how do you survive being in and not of when you're sent back in? You get into the word and get the word into you. So it's a commitment to the word. It's also a commitment to one another. I love the video this morning on small groups. You're not in a small group. You're missing out. You're missing out. And I just want to say that. If you do not have a close group of people you're journeying with, that's Jesus' model of discipleship. You know, his model of discipleship, the core model of discipleship is not sitting here on Sunday morning listening to a little fat guy from Cambridge. It's getting in a small group. Okay? That's the core model. We saw it. We see it right now in this upper room. So you make a commitment to one another, to one another, right? And that's why Jesus said there in verse uh, 23, in them, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one. Make a commitment to community. Now, as we close, let me just share this and I'm done. Jesus' ultimate desire, friends, his ultimate desire for himself and for you and I is that we glorify the Father, the Father's glory, right? That's how he started off. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that your Son also may glorify you. And that purpose is handed to us. That is his mission. And his mission, his purpose, his everything, his hour has come. He's saying, my time here is almost finished. And God has revealed to us the fullness of, of God to us. And the final act of that revelation is he'll reveal God's love and power at the cross. It's amazing. It's amazing. As you have given him authority over all flesh that he should give eternal life to as many as you have given him. That's what Jesus does, right? The apex of all of human history will be God's glory. What is God's glory? You often hear that term, eh? like God's glory, but then you think, oh, what exactly is? I sort of know. I think I know. It's very simple. It's the essence. It's the completeness of his character and all of his attributes. You see God and you go, wow, 
right? You just go, wow. It's the, it's the completeness of all of his attributes, his perfectness. It's so overwhelming. It's so awesome. It's so awesome. Is God's glory through you, your prayer, just as it was Jesus? Let me ask you that as we close this morning. Or are, are you stuck on a list of wants? Is, is your prayer to God, say, hey, you know, really, first and foremost, uh, as Basil Pennington, I'm giving myself to you, God, and I'm coming to you, I'm seeking you, or is it like, yeah, God, you know, I'd really like this, I'd like a better job, or, you know, boy, a friend's got a bigger house, it'd be nice if I could get a bigger house. Or is it about God's glory? Because Paul said in 1 Corinthians, whatever you do, whether it's you eat or you drink or whatever you do, do all to the what? Glory of God. Glory of God, first and foremost. And God's glory is seen so wonderfully and beautifully and completely in his work of redeeming and restoring the fallen world that we live in. Is that your heartbeat this day? And let me just say this, and I'm done. As we come to the close of the upper room, I I want to encourage you, church, to persevere to the very end for the sake of God's glory. Remember last week I shared with you and we talked, we looked at the words of Jesus that said, you know, in this world you'll have tribulation, but take heart, I've overcome the world. The issue is living your life so that it brings God's glory right to the end. These disciples, they actually lived relatively short lives, but they lived faithful lives. And the Christian life is about finishing and persevering and bringing God glory. Not attention to yourself for your glory or anything, but bringing God glory. A great story, if you go on the internet, if you Google, remember I told you, if you Google and look up the Boston Marathon slowest time, slowest time, you'll find Bob Wheeland. Bob Wheeland completed the Boston Marathon four days, two hours, 48 minutes, 17 seconds in 1986. He actually started two hours before everybody else, but he finished four days later. He was the 19,413 finisher. Why was he so slow? Because he was the first person to run the marathon using his arms instead of his legs. Because at that time, in 1986, he was a 40-year-old California. Uh, Californian whose legs had been blown off 17 years in a Vietnam battlefield, but he ran the race on his hands using his muscular arms like crutches and lifting up his torso and throwing it forward. He eventually walked across the U.S. doing that five million steps. You imagine grueling, grueling. Do you know why he did that? In demonstration of his Christian faith that he was going to persevere. He's an amazing guy, an amazing guy. It's no surprise because when his legs were blown off in June of 1969, they let him send a telegram home to his parents, this young army recruit. This is what he wrote. Dear mom and dad, I'm in the hospital. Everything is going to be okay. The people here are taking good care of me. Love, Bob. P.S. I think I lost my legs. Wow. But you know what he said? He said, on that day, my legs went one direction and my life went another. And it was a life that would be given to God's glory because when he came home from Vietnam, he was signed to play Major League Baseball. So he gave his whole life over to God's glory. My daughter, I told you, lives in Australia. In Australia, they have a hero named Steve Bradbury. Steve Bradbury is the only Australian that's won a gold medal in speed skating. He had no business winning a gold medal in speed skating. But he won a gold medal in speed skating on Australian in the Winter Olympics of 2002, even beating Anton Ono. Remember that guy who was like star speed skater, if you remember back to those days? Steve Bradbury won the gold medal. You know why he won? 
He wasn't the fastest skater. He wasn't the strongest skater. He wasn't the best trained skater. None of that. He didn't have the best coaching. But in the final heat of the short track, I think it was the 1,000 meter skate or 500 meter, in the final heat, he's skating around in last place. Last pl- he's, he's dead last. But everybody in front of him, do you know what happened to them? They crashed into each other and fell down. And last pace, place, Steve Bradbury, he comes around, oh, good day, mates, and he skates on by. <laughs> and he wins the gold medal. Listen, church, and I'm done. Listen, you don't have to be the fastest Christian, the most spiritual Christian, the most biblically astute Christian, you know, the most in church Christian to bring glory to God, but you gotta finish. Amen? And if you do, the king of glory puts a gold medal around your neck. And he says, well done, well done. You got to finish because it's about him. It always has been and it always will be. Let's pray. Father God, we love you. We love you. Father God, may we finish. Thank you that Jesus lifted us up to you and desires that you would keep us on this mission, that we are in the world to be salt and light, but we're not to be of the world because you've called us out of the world to be different, and yet you've sent us back in on mission. Father, may our mission be that of your Son to glorify you in every regard. And Father, may we finish and finish well for your glory. For we know the reward is great. Amen and amen.